0: This is the Scott Thompson Show
1: podcast. Today marks the 20th anniversary of the tragic passing of Princess Diana, and um, to uh, discuss it with us is our friend Robert Finch uh, from the Monarchist League of Canada. Robert, thanks for the time today.
0: That's my pleasure, Jamie. How are you?
1: I'm, I'm very well. Um, this is a this is a big day uh, for people that are are monarchists, for people that loved and appreciated. Uh, Diana, whether she was a princess or not a princess, just for the the work she did in, in the world and the light she brought. And, um, you know, everybody's doing the I remember where I was when I heard the news kind of thing today. But what did Diana mean to Canadians, do you think, Robert?
0: You know, there's all, <laughs> it, but, but she had a great legacy, I think. And I think that we continue to see that legacy today. I think if you look at what Diana did most, I think she really worked, she worked tirelessly to make the world a better place. And she did that in her capacity as the Prince of Wales. She did that in her capacity as a mother. Um, she, you, know, you might recall she really was uh, one of the first uh, uh, well-known people to sort of uh, reach out to HIV patients uh, and AIDS patients. She would go to hospitals and uh, try to uh, combat the stigmatization associated with that uh, with that illness. Uh, she was very active in uh, Supporting the victims of war, uh, and one of her uh, her causes that uh, I think we continue to see the legacy today is uh, is to was to get rid of landmines. Of the yes, world. and I believe that uh, it was her her, you know, her 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 drive to do this uh, that really uh, has made the world a much safer place. Her royal role, she had a very obviously prominent royal role as the Prince of Wales, Princess of Wales. And she balanced that with the perhaps most difficult job, and that's the job of being a mother. And I think that when you look at both of her boys, William and Harry today, I think they are the living legacy of, of the Prince of the Wales. Uh,
1: recently I had the opportunity to uh, be in Scotland, and I toured the uh, Royal Yacht Britannia, which is uh, docked in uh, Edinburgh. And uh, got a sense uh, through a very well-done guided tour of, you know, what some of the family life was like on that, on that yacht, including Diana and, and Charles and, and the boys and that kind of thing. It, it's, it's, it remains fascinating how taken people are, I think particularly with the whole Diana and Charles story.
0: Do you agree with that? Oh, I think so. I, I, I think that. I mean, w- when you talk about fairy tale weddings and and, and whatnot, that's the that's the marriage, the, the the wedding that comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was <laughs> I was a little boy, so I could I I didn't remember <laughs> anything of watching on TV. But if you kind of uh, take yourself back in, in, into that time, um, I mean, that that was a major major story. I mean, everybody around the world was focused on uh, on that particular. Wedding. There was uh, there was there was interest and an attraction to uh, to Princess Diana that uh, was really un un, un, unparalleled, and I I don't know if it's even been parallel today. I I mean, I think some people have. It's natural that you'll ask people try to draw a comparison. uh, Well, she uh, the Duchess of Cambridge, but I I don't know if I don't know if I don't know if you can.
1: She opened the door. I think, uh, in my opinion, to you know making. To, to letting some of the hot air out of the monarchy a, a little bit or the hot air out of the royal the royal family. I, I think I think the royal family to some degree is misunderstood um, simply because people don't always get a real clear uh, vision or view of what's going on behind those royal palace gates, you know, most of the time. So that often leads to misunderstanding. However, it's pretty clear that she brought a very common touch to um, what most people would perceive as somewhat of a stuffiness that goes along with with um, being a member of the royal family, and and I'm uh, you mentioned legacy. I think that uh, what I observe, and and I did get up on that 1981 morning uh, or very early to watch that wedding take place, as a lot of people did uh, back in the day. I think her legacy is is those boys and. Um, and is and they're carrying that through I think very very well they're doing I think they're doing an exceptional job of connecting uh with uh the subjects of the of the monarchy uh, in the UK would you agree with that
0: I totally agree with that I think yeah. that uh, I, I I agree with that 100 percent and if you look at Prince William he has uh he, he very much has a Dianesque approach to uh to his uh his uh, role and balancing the royal duties but you know, first and foremost, he, he's the father and the husband, and I think that he carries his mother's legacy in uh, doing that. And you're right; they have, um, you know, I what Princess Diana is that she she did soften the monarchy. Uh, the monarchy today is much more laid back, much more relaxed, less uh, concerned with uh, protocol, and more concerned with uh, connecting with everyday people.
1: Well, and I, I suppose one of those things I, I mentioned an example of the decommissioning of the. The Royal Yacht Britannia—that happened in 1997—that um, I think that served as a great symbol, in a way, of of, the, of that that coming down, uh, that it was headed in that direction. Do you not? Do you
0: agree with I that? I agree. Yeah, some, yeah. I, I I wouldn't disagree with you on that, Jamie.
1: You know, the idea that the the royal family would have all these um, you know special ultra special benefits that came with a a bit of a price tag uh, to them them um, kind of walking away from, from some of that I mean don't get me wrong they're, they're still living a, a very good life in, in the order of tradition as, as, uh, as the royal family but I, I guess um, it was interesting too when we look back uh, 20 years uh, to this particular day at what went on over the course of the week that followed the death of Diana and how there was no protocol whatsoever for uh, her funeral um, they were in a whole new territory as far as protocol and, and the whole mon- the monarchy and the royal family is all about, you know, the rules and the protocols and so on and so forth. They had to, they had to come up with something in a very short period of time uh, for her funeral based largely on the, the incredible outpouring of the common people.
0: It was it, it was a lot of improvisation, uh, and a shock is a is a good word. I think uh, I think the royal family obviously were uh, shocked as as we were. Uh, and if you if you, you know if you go back in, in time, 20 years ago, everybody at that time, uh, in the in the late 90s, 97, uh, the only funeral that was really being discussed at the time was for the Queen Mother. Right. Like she was she was getting older, and there was some sort of planning that was uh, taking place. Never in their wildest imagination uh, would they think that they would uh, uh, have to be planning a, uh, a funeral for the uh, for young uh, Princess Diana. So it's a lot of improvisation.
1: There were a lot of people, I understand, you know, that were gathered um, inside Buckingham Palace, pulled together to discuss and try to make these plans that we, that for her funeral. And of course, there was, you know, there was the royal family... Uh, delegates and then there was the spencer family uh, delegates and uh, the queen herself and and uh, prince philip were were at balmoral at the time and and they were sort of conferenced conferenced in um, on a speaker phone from balmoral uh, to the uh, proceedings of the planning they were up in balmoral where where uh, william and harry uh, were taken with their dad to get away from it all and be you know, I think that was by the way, I think that was a good thing. I think that really showed, and in particular on the part of the Queen and Prince Charles yeah. and Philip, a desire to put family first rather than duty first and and I think they made the right call. They got a lot of heat for that. they got a lot of heat for that They did you know, did. but they made I think they made the right call you're bang on. They,
0: uh, they, I remember those days in the aftermath, they, they, they were, you know, there was a lot of pressure on the, on the queen in particular, uh, that, uh, you know, what, what, what are you doing? Um, but, uh, you know, she had the, she had the the insight to say, listen, I gotta, <laughs> I, I have two roles here. I have the, I'm, the, I'm the queen, but I'm also a grandmother. Yeah, these are my children here. They're there. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, for what the queen did to isolate the boys from what was going on down in London? I, I think was very uh, empathetic, very compassionate on her part, and she really deserved a lot more credit uh, for that than what she. But I think she's getting it now, but like I said, certainly in the aftermath, I think she took a little bit of heat, and it was really uh, unfair.
1: Well, and it, and it, I think that whole the the feeling of the people, um, uh, you know, of Britain at the time was it, the whole thing was honest. And, authentic. and even the even the ill feelings, the, the, the feeling of deep sadness that was expressed by the common people uh, that was just absolutely unprecedented, followed uh, by a, a wave or a move towards a tension or an anger uh, towards the royal family. But again, the Queen listened. The royal family listened to what the people were saying. And I think at the end of the day, when we look back 20 years, I think we need to recognize that. At least they heard what the common people were saying, and the Queen kind of responded to that. And yes, she did take to the airwaves um, you know, eventually uh, to, um, you know, to say what she said uh, ab- about Diana and uh, to answer some of that.
0: I agree. They, the, the monarchy and the Queen in particular, they've shown an incredible ability to, to, to listen, to sort of gauge the, uh, the public mood, and to, uh, to, to do the necessary things in order to move things forward. And I think, quite frankly... Uh, the Queen and the monarchy, as an institution, are better off today as a result of, uh, of what they've learned in the aftermath of those days.
1: That was a very, uh, that was a very critical uh, point in time for the monarchy, wasn't it, uh, Robert? As you just pointed out, um, things were not going really well for them. Uh, lots of people wondering, "Oh, what are we doing here with the royal family and all that?" And I think you're right. I think. Um, I think in the aftermath of uh, Diana's death and the and the boys growing up and taking a more prominent public uh, role uh, around the world, I, I think those guys, uh, you know, is save for some of Harry's fun crazy antics in the early days, they've really um, kind of saved it. I think, have they not?
0: They have. They have. They've, they've certainly raised to the occasion, and I think that you'd be hard pressed to find anybody uh, today that doesn't admire, even if you're not a monarchist. You have to admire. Uh, the work and the and the duty that uh, the boys uh, William and Harry, uh, you know, put in. They take the job very seriously, but at the same time, they also understand that they are ordinary people in extraordinary positions. So uh, they're able to have that uh, softer touch that uh, that Diana has.
1: Robert Finch, uh, Monarchist League of uh, Canada, here in Hamilton. Thanks so much for this. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. You take care. Have Jim. a great day. Bye for now.
2: You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from
3: noon to 3 on AM
1: 900 CHML. Lots of talk uh, these days about, uh, of course, heading back to school. Kids go back to school uh, next Tuesday. And there's been a lot of talk in the last couple of days about math test scores, uh, EQAO math test scores falling short uh, in the province of Ontario. Uh, Word is they have not improved. In some cases, they have decreased slightly despite a $60 million, quote, renewed math strategy the government had hoped uh, would solve the problem. Uh, The latest results of the province's standardized tests uh, conducted by the Education Quality and Accountability Office, boy, that's a title and a half, show that only half of grade six students met the provincial standard in math unchanged from the previous year. In 2013, about 57 percent of Grade Six students met the standard, and among Grade Three students, 62 percent met the provincial standard in math—a one percentage point decrease since last year. Uh, What does all this mean? Um, uh, It's—it is obviously—it's not a trend. Uh, that we want to uh, see continue Mary Reed is a professor at the University of Toronto's Ontario Institute for Studies and Education Mary, thank you for being with us on the program this afternoon
4: Thanks Jamie for having me
1: this um, these results uh, y- you know we 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 laser down pinpoint on these results. Can you give us a broader context around around this stuff or did I just do that
4: so, the results are alarming and disheartening, and we can't ignore them. Um, no matter what your beliefs are about the standardized test, they we have to do something about it, and I think we have to act upon it as a province and as uh, citizens of uh, across this nation. Um, the only half fifty percent half of students in grade six being able to perform at standard, is something that we have to act upon as well as the decrease in in grade 3.
1: Okay, so let's educate everybody that's listening to this program because there are lots of people listening to this show who are completely out of touch with the way things work. There are people who wouldn't have a clue what an EQAO test is. They wouldn't even know that we're doing standardized testing in school. There are others who Uh, know about standardized testing and who are listening to other experts around the globe who are saying, get rid of standardized testing. It's one of the worst things you can do to educate people. Um, Take us through this a little bit, uh, uh, Mary, uh, on how uh, standardized testing uh, came to be in the province of Ontario.
4: So it was implemented in the Mike Harris days, and I believe that, uh, well, the purpose of, of the EQA, or provincial assessments, is for school improvement. It's not about ranking schools. It's not about real estate decisions. It's really about school improvement and trying to figure out where we are at and trying to devote money to places that require more, that are more needy. So definitely, uh, if this test um, if wasn't happening, we wouldn't know that uh, we were so in, in need for a math. Then, then
1: why are so many people, why are so many other education experts opposed to
4: it? It's because I think we blow the results out of proportion and, you know, using it to, to make real estate uh, decisions, for example. It's uh, a snapshot in time and it's supposed to really improve school's decisions and, and drive, um, It's it's one data point, really, okay? The real assessment is teacher assessment, the right. everyday observations. That's the rich assessment. But this gives ministry officials and, and people, uh, leaders across our, our province, the a data point that enables us to see where we're at. So, you know, because of this, we're going to have more money poured into the renewed math strategy and develop some math coaches and perhaps um, encourage our teachers uh, really improve our professional development and support our teachers because they're working hard and we want to ensure that the supports are there for them.
1: But isn't really the issue the way people learn, the way human beings learn? Uh, You know, EQAO tests or standardized testing do nothing but evaluate, you know, the teachers or the curriculum. And shouldn't we be focusing more on how kids learn so that we can properly give them the tactics or give teachers the tactics to teach johnny maybe a little differently than Janie because they learn differently
4: it's, a sta- it's one of the unfortunate um, byproducts of standardized testing is that it's there's no differentiated instruction there there's some open-ended yeah. responses there's some multiple choice questions and those items are are standardized right and they do pass through sensitivity and bias committees but there's going to be bias in every single test, no matter what. You know, bias in all pedagogy, depending on what uh, we bring to the classrooms. Um, But it does provide a snapshot in time, and it provides statistical significance in how we do, and it's based on the Ontario curriculum expectations, and there are open-ended questions that um, students should hopefully be able to do Independently, because that's ultimately what we want to uh, measure as well that that independence of problem solving and, and understanding those math concepts and um, it's hopefully um, it's going to drive some positive change. You know we've got we see this huge achievement gap between the grade nine applied and academic, and um, because of this achievement gap where the academic students do very well somewhere in the 80%, whereas the applied uh, students uh, scored 44% uh, at standard. That huge achievement gap is telling us that there's haves and have-nots, and there's some equity issues there. So um, we're looking at research that shows that de-streaming in grade 9 can have positive impact on students. So the the test does have some value in it.
1: Some Another expert, um, uh, Kathy Bruce, the Dean of Education at Trent University, said that w- one of the things that can affect a better outcome in terms of uh, test scores is getting it into the heads of kids, that the belief that they can be good at math, that that having a belief that you're not good at math can actually lower your chances of getting a good result.
4: Absolutely, yes big fan of Kathy Bruce's research, yes. And you're absolutely right, that it's called efficacy and, and efficacy doesn't only happen for students as learners but also for teachers. So if you're not confident as a math teacher, that's gonna impact your teaching strategies and the pedagogy that you implement in the classroom. So and that's all correlated to anxiety as well. So, you know, there's strong correlation between efficacy and math anxiety and your math performance. And that um, I have strong research that clearly gives evidence that um, students that have anxiety in math do uh, pro- perform poorly in, in math, so they, they don't do as well. And
1: does that extend to other areas of, of study as well? I would imagine that, that, that it does, and, and, if it, and if the answer is yes to the first question, then, you know, what are we doing uh, putting so much focus on test results?
4: Yeah, it's um, it's not, you know what, the the test results is one data point, and we've always really advocated that the real assessment is made by the teacher, that daily um, assessment of observations and, and digging down to students' work on a daily basis and seeing the progress and growth of students. This is just that one day where students were at, at that point in time, and what they were able to perform at that time, and because the numbers are so huge, it does gain some significance in, in statistically.
1: Yeah, so it's a snapshot, in it's other words. A
4: snapshot, absolutely. That's what it is. It's a snapshot to support school improvement.
1: People would be, I think, horrified to consider and I'll throw this out to our audience here at 905-645-3221 or star 9900. I'll play a little bit of a guessing game with them. Where where do they think Canada fits in uh, on the list of um, developed nations when it comes to the education of our young people? They, I think a lot of people and don't give the number away because you probably know what okay, it is. But I know it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 let's just put it this way. It's nowhere near as high as most of you listening to this program think it is. Yeah. It, in fact, it's way way down there.
4: It's been declining unfortunately. So we we see this trend happening not only across our province but across the nation in the international scores as well.
1: So why aren't we listening to countries like Finland more who Finland seems to rank up right up there in the top 1 or 2? Why aren't we just taking their cues?
4: So as far as math is concerned, it's really countries like, it's Singapore, it's, it's, okay. it's East Asia. But they have their other, you know, they have issues like, you know, in Korea, they have a high suicide rate, and there's a lot of mental health issues. Um, Just like here. Uh, yeah, but theirs is really... Is, much, is, higher? is okay.
1: much higher? Okay. It's much
4: higher. They have, in Singapore, they have rules such as you can't, you can't hire tutors after 10 p.m., for example, like, it's just there's a lot of pressure. So they have different issues, All right. yet their scores are, they sur- surpass Canada and Ontario um, by... So they have great our, math
1: scores, but uh, people with mental illness who are stressed out and mm-hmm. killing themselves.
4: Yeah, but Singapore, we can learn a lot from Singapore. We've got, they have um, a very small attrition rate. Teachers are highly, highly valued, and when teachers become teachers, they 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 stay as teachers and when we when they give professional development to their teachers it's not this one-shot deal once a week or a half a day here or you know after school here but they pull them out of their classrooms and they focus in for six weeks to even six months at a time where you're going to really delve and be immersed in professional development and then go back to the classroom and and begin to collaborate with your colleagues. So,
1: well, what happens I, at these professional development days that they have once a month now in the school year? When do, what goes on there?
4: There's a lot. It's not perfect. You know, it's it's hard because teachers have to prepare, prepare for the supply teacher. Oh, well, I, I know. It's, it's a tough job. It's a tough job, and and then they got to get back into the classroom and pick up from the unfinished work, and it's just it's a lot. Uh, It's a difficult, challenging job.
1: Would it be safe to say, Mary, that our education system may be at a point now where we have to give serious attention to the latest research on education and do some serious reform of our system, or we're going to be in trouble?
4: Yeah, I... I think we are ready for a new curriculum, that's for sure. I'm okay. a critic of the curriculum, and it's 2005, it's old, and there's hundreds of expectations that teachers have to cover, and that's a lot. I think the curriculum needs to go more in-depth, and right now it's all breadth but no depth. It needs to have an understanding that, that it gives needs to give students opportunities to delve deeper into the concepts and to make more stronger connections between the, the math strands. And to also give more opportunity to students for cross curricular integration. So teaching math through history, geography, science, for example. Right. So that's a really good starting point and I know the ministry is is beginning to go in that direction. We need to de stream grade nine. Like the by the time when kids hit grade eight, they're not ready to make a decision if they're gonna go to university or not non-uni- or non university right. um, streams, right? So we, we need to de-stream grade 9, which means that we have to revamp the grade 9 curriculum as well and uh, make sure that all needs are met, not just um, students in the academic stream.
1: And, uh, and I'm guessing that, unfortunately, that takes legislative change, and that's the stuff that moves the slowest. When you start bouncing stuff around politically, um, the last people that uh, really... Uh, are considered are the are the students I mean it's the politicians just bouncing stuff around it's 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 kind of messy
4: the Ministry of Education I'm hopeful that they are listening and that they're gonna act upon it now that we see the scores and they're gonna move I I I have faith that they will be moving on this and it's not going to be 10 years from now it's gonna happen soon
1: well I hope I I hope you're right because uh, it it has to we can't we literally can't afford to to wait around um, yeah,
4: because we won't be able to compete in a global society if we continue yeah. with um, low results.
1: Yeah. Mary Reed, professor at the University of Toronto's Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Uh, thanks for spending a bit of time with us here this afternoon.
4: Thank you so much.
1: All you the care. best. You okay. too. Bye. Bye. 905-645-3221 or uh, star 9900. Uh, how do you feel about our education system as it stands? How do you feel about standardized Testing, you know, I, from what I've come to understand, I'm not a I'm not a fan of it because it, all it does is test your ability to write a test. Um, I don't think it has much to do with actually learning concepts and things that will that you can take with you in your bag of tools in life and and use. And I and I really wish we would get a lot more focused on life skill related curriculum. Um, that would be my hope. I don't know what your thoughts are. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. I think we need a lot more practical um, education in our in our schools. Uh, life skill stuff. Uh, technology, I could go all over the place on this with this topic. Communication technology alone is is killing human interaction, um it's a wonderful thing but it's definitely a double-edged double-edged sword so we have to that has to be fit into the curriculum we've got to find a way to for example um have people in the schools that teach people how to continue relating to a human being as opposed to just relating to a screen you know with with recognizing that screens are a part of our life and a big part and they're here to stay but let's not lose our our human contact either and our ability to communicate one-on-one as, as human beings through a non, you know, electronic means. There's the whole thing. You know, we've talked about so many of these topics on the talk shows over the years. Things like teaching kids money management. You want to teach children at an early age about mathematics? Teach them some business, business financial skills. You know, use that as a basis uh, for them to learn some math and also learn the value of money, which becomes very important uh, in life. 905 or star 9900. Hi, Robbie, go ahead.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I think what we are doing here is one teacher in the elementary school is doing too many subjects. You know, she, she could be an arts graduate right. who is uh, good in arts and geography and all, but she's supposed to teach math too. Right. Uh, so, that, so that means, I mean, there's no passion. You know, the she could be passionate about geography, but not about math. Right. That's so easy. if you're an expert
1: in everything, you're an expert in nothing.
2: That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Uh-huh. So in other countries like, in, like uh, the, uh, Korea and what China and all, they have specialized teachers uh, doing special uh, subjects math teacher will come and teach math we have to introduce this as in the fundamentals in the the grade one two three onwards not in high school high school we have specialized teachers that is good but that's too late in the, the bad habits
1: math. are already established by then that's,
2: that's correct but so by that that's why we are so weak in math we have to have math graduates teaching math yeah Just likewise makes others, sense yeah yes all right ravi thanks for the call you
1: have, have a good day. 905 Hi, Ted. Go ahead.
2: Yeah. Hey, uh,
0: just, a, just a comment uh, on the math skills. You know, I'm a bit of a technical person. And for me, standardized testing, particularly for math, is kind of an essential thing. There's no, it's not ambiguous. I mean, if you can't add, subtract, I don't know, you know, what these, you know, grade six, what they're doing today. If you can't add subtract, multiply, and divide, you're kind of mixed even on your social
1: for sure I mean like with all due respect to your comment, I agree with you hundred percent and I you know, agree I with you The you've got to have that basic if, if uh, you don't have basic math skills oh absolutely I mean, you you can't function the, the, absolutely so A- absolutely that's the-
0: I, I can't I can't agree with you that uh, standardized math testing can't say for the other disciplines now, but math. As far as kids, you know, with their screens today, I mean, hey, they're even on their bikes when I go down the bike yeah. paths.
1: No, I hear you, Ted. I got a oh, I got, I got, I got run to get yep, out to yep, break here, but yep, thank you yep, for yep, calling. Good yep, point yep, raised. Appreciate yep, it. Bye-bye. Take
3: care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHL.
1: Police in Ontario are concerned that uh, recent attacks in Hamilton and York region are causing uh, parts of southern Ontario to turn into a, a mob battlefield. And the latest thing was a fire in Woodbridge early yesterday uh, serving up as the latest uh, example of more than a dozen attacks in hamilton new york region that uh, again have police wondering whether there's a mob uh, war starting to happen here Uh, this is according to police sources organized crime investigators are probing a nighttime fire at a home that was fired upon twice earlier this month Um, joining us on the line to talk about it is a guy who who knows an awful lot about uh, these stories, James Dubrow? He is well known, longtime crime writer and researcher, longtime specialist in organized crime, going way back to 1974. James, good to have you on the show today. James, good to have you on the show today. Are you there? I guess we lost him. He's he was there, and now he's gone. So what we've got going on here is. A whole lot of things. I mentioned the fire uh, yesterday in Woodbridge. Uh, The home that I'm talking about was on uh, Mellings Drive, and was fully engulfed in flames when a call was received from neighbors around 1:45 in the morning. Um, The house was under guard at the time of the fire, and the occupants weren't inside the home. In all of these, uh, all of these fire bombings, if you will, uh, nobody was hurt. Um, Of course, we got the the story of the the Musitano murder up in uh, Waterdown um, and we've got the story of the brothers home uh, Pat Musitano's home being sprayed with bullets uh, as well you know c- connecting the dots that gets police are saying wait a minute there's a lot of strange things going on here how do these things all all connect Uh, James Dubrow is an expert on these things, and he joins us on the line. James, uh, good to have you on the show.
3: Oh, good to be here.
1: Excellent. So, your your history with uh, looking into organized crime uh, as a writer, researcher, journalist goes back to
3: 1974. Yes, uh, I'm afraid it's over 40 years or so.
1: My goodness. A lot has happened. Yeah, so, okay, so for for the average person and the average talk show host like me, yeah. looking at recent events, namely um, the murder in Waterdown yes. of Mr. Musitano, uh, and then followed up by the bullets that hit his brother's home. Um, in in Central Hamilton and, and then...
3: Pat, Pat Musitano is, is the key one there uh, even though he hasn't been killed yet.
1: Right, okay so so let, I'll just hand it over to you. Start connecting these dots for me to, right, to this well, stuff in Woodbridge too.
3: Yeah, you said something uh, that the police are looking into a possible mob war and I, I think it's a little premature to call it a mob war. We've had them over the years and they certainly have one in Montreal right now. It's more like a classic mob settling of accounts going on hmm. and you know it's natural in human nature I I think to assume that all things are connected. We've had a number of shootings, arsons, bombings, and professional hits in the last five months, you know, in Hamilton, Toronto and Vaughan. But of the actual people killed there's only about three or four, where we have dozens in Montreal. I I think what we have and they may not be connected. That is some of them may be connected for sure, because they're all connected in the sense that they're an organized crime settling of accounts. There's no question about that. But whether it's over various drug turfs or whether it's over gambling um, concessions and gambling operations or whether it's over, as a lot of people think and I think, uh, various Andranguta cells, the older Andranguta cells run by the Musitanos and the Camisos here in Toronto and newer ones coming in from Italy and uh establishing themselves in the greater Toronto area and the Hamilton area. That's probably what's really going on. That it was organized crime. The mafia isn't as unified as everyone says. We talk about the mafia, but yeah. there are actually many mafias, uh, many mafia cells, many mafia organizations, even in Italy. So there's always internal friction and people jostling for position and power and turf. And I think that's what's going on here. And, of course, we have a very big... Uh, organized crime presence in the greater Toronto area and right. Hamilton area so that's going back for 100 years.
1: Well you you stop you, you know you talked about gambling and drugs and all that stuff. Yep. What what let, let's drill down a little bit more on that. Sure. What what are what are the big what are the big fights over nowadays? What's the big racket? What's the thing of value that that these organized crime um, groups groups would be
3: fighting over? Right. Well, there's a lot of things. I mean, uh, I suppose the main things would be cocaine trafficking. You know, I, a number of people have told me on the street that the, some of the activity against the Musitanos is over cocaine uh, territory in the Hamilton, Niagara region area, uh, who controls some of that, which used to be for years the Papalia family, uh, Johnny Papalia. And he had people in Welland and, and uh, Niagara Falls that controlled the cocaine thing. But since he was murdered by the Musitanos, incidentally, <laughs> right? Uh, they they have taken over a lot of that. But they're they're not very solid right now. I mean, what I find it almost amusing uh, because the movie is out called uh, the Hitman's Bodyguard. I mean, it seems to me they all need very good bodyguards right now. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, it's ironic. Angela was killed. Pat, you know, uh, a super blowhard type Uh, he wouldn't be around past Labor Day, which is coming up, if he didn't have very good protection. And, and, and I noticed in the uh, arson last night, there were people protecting the house, the people protecting. So it's a very good growth industry is being an enforcer and bodyguard in in the organized crime right now. That's a very good job career option.
1: How does, um, I mean, you, you're looking into all of these things all the time. Uh, there was a, a record cocaine bust two days ago, yes. $250 million worth, uh, street worth of cocaine, uh, the largest ever. Um, that must have had your wheels spinning a little oh, bit. Oh,
3: sure. Well, they did, they, I noticed the police didn't say where it was going and uh, who was going to be distributing it, but I, I, you can be pretty sure that it would be going, first of all, it's probably organized by uh, Mexican and South American cartels, but it, it's probably going to bikers and uh, mafia uh, groups throughout. Montreal area, Quebec area, and southern Ontario. There's no question about that. They have an endless amount of supply, that, no matter how much, and that was a lot they took out, but no matter how much they take out, there's more and more coming in. They've never been able to control it, which is why the war on drugs has been such a colossal failure over the last 30, 40 years. Yeah.
1: So, uh, tell, talk to me about, then, the, the struggles between the various groups. If we going to identify the teams, so to speak, and yeah. who, who, who hates each other more. Uh, you know, you mentioned the bikers in there. How tied in are they with the, you know, the, 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 the mafia?
3: Yeah. Well, the, the bikers work, you know, they've traditionally have worked as enforcers for the mafia. I mean, okay. an old friend of mine is Cecil Kirby, who was the hitman for the Camiso crime family back in the 80s. And, um, you know, he did that when he was in Satan's Choice. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's a kind of tradition, um, and you go you go where the muscle is, uh, but they've been working together in Montreal the last few years, uh, the bikers, the uh, mafia, the Italian mafia, and the street gangs, the Haitian street gangs there. They've been working together as three sort of almost, you know, integrated units on a lot of operations. So organized crime works with, you know, they try to keep things, whatever they're running, whether it's ecstasy or cocaine or pot, which is going to be, out the window for them soon, uh, although they'll they'll try to lower the price, I think, and keep a share of the market. Right. Where does heroin and meth fit into this? Oh, heroin, uh, speed, and and meth, and all those drugs. You know that fentanyl fits in. Right. This. It's, yeah. It's a big thing. Now that Asian organized crime, we left that off the docket here for the moment, but yeah. they're very big into the fentanyl and opioid, uh, as well as the marijuana production and all that. And uh, a lot of the fentanyl comes from. Uh, Pill press factories in China. So Chinese organized crime is very involved in all this. And they can send it to their dealers here in, in North America, especially in, in the Toronto area, Hamilton area.
1: So which groups hate each other more? And give us a sense of where the conflict is, where the friction is.
3: Well, at the moment, it seems like everyone hates everyone else. Okay. <laughs> to say it. It's a
1: free-for-all.
3: Yeah, I think since Vito Rizzuto came back and tried to consolidate, so he lost... Vito Rizzuto was in jail for about eight years in the states for a murder, which involved conflict inside the mafia. Again, it involved him being a wheelman on a very major killing in the uh, uh, the Gambino family, back in the uh, No, it was in the Bonanno family. Anyway, it was back way back in time.
1: Even you're losing track of. Them I know all. there's just so
3: many hits and everything. Well, actually, that is a famous story. But he 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 went he came back, and when he was gone. Uh, all sorts of people in this family were killed, including his father, his son. Uh, he lost a lot of faith, so he came back a few years ago and tried to, you know, balance the card by killing a lot of people and putting people in line. But by the time he started to do that, and he never got total control, but he started to, uh, he died of natural causes. Uh, and once he died, there already been many alliances, you know, uh, foe leadership and various temporary leaderships when he was in jail. And there was a lot of just venting of uh, revenge and people killing each other in that Rizzuto family. And part of that is it, it has affected uh, southern Ontario, too, I should say. Although Rizzuto didn't directly control southern Ontario. He had people here. The Musitanos were tied into him, various other people. And uh, the dissolution of the Rizzuto family is still an ongoing epic battle in Quebec and in a spin off in southern Ontario. So they hate each other. The bikers and the Asian crime groups and all the other criminal groups tend to work together, but you know, uh the the Haitian games don't have they haven't had a lot of respect for the Rizzuto crime family Italian and they've been some of them have been hired as hitmen or acted as hitmen in the killing even of Rizzuto's son. And here we've seen street gangs uh they're now street gangs are now recruited to do killings the way bikers were years ago. So you see them involved in a lot of these hits. Um, so really, as I said earlier, being a professional hitman is, is a is a good career option right now. And so
1: all of this is over uh, drug trafficking, in particular, the, the, the drug of the day that's making, that has the biggest profit margin seems to be Coke. Is that is that correct? And gambling? Coke,
3: yeah, there's a good market for Coke, and there's an endless supply. So yeah, Coke is certainly one of them, but it's not the only one. What about
1: I mean, steroids and stuff like steroids that? Steroids
3: is a very good... You know, people overlook steroids, but it's a very good moneymaker for organized crime because, you know, let's face it, it's hard to get them legally. And every gym has a supplier, and usually they're connected to organized crime. Yeah, steroids yeah. for sure. Everything that people want that's illegal or illicit, that a lot of people want, will be got. And,
1: and gambling as well you 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 know yes, to, to to a naive person like me i i, I think well you, you know there's casinos everywhere why do sure. you, why would you get involved with organized crime to do gambling and what does that look like are we talking about back rooms back where rooms? they're throwing dice like yeah, what's going room,
3: on back room uh, card games everything from back room card games to online huge online operations which are you know admittedly morally these days the government runs most gambling so it's hard to say they're um, they're terribly offensive, but they are illegal. Mm-hmm. So there's a market for it, and and there's money to be made. There are big gambling operations out of Western New York and Southern Ontario, uh, mostly in online, and they're offshore gambling empires. So they they try to the police try to uh, try to corner the people that are here, and that's why they've been looking at some of these places in the Vaughan area and uh, Toronto area.
1: Yeah, these cafes. So the violence and, and that
3: Carrots, you know, the guy who was almost killed uh, a few weeks ago. At uh, the mall, he yes. was—he was—he was very much into these gambling operations, and he was involved uh, in a in a shooting uh, which left a woman, uh, an innocent woman, maimed, uh, Louise Russo, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And that, that I remember do, that story? Yeah, yeah, and that had to do with a hundred and ten thousand dollar debt from gambling. So all of this ties in, you know, because gambling leads to loan sharking and extortion and. How do you get the money back? Well, often you have to resort to violence, have to send a message to the people. So all these things are interconnected in the organized crime world, and people are hired to kill. You know, often, you know, that Louise Russo thing, it was involving the mafia, the Hells Angels, working together, mm-hmm. you know, to kill a person, and they and they failed very badly. It was very unprofessional. They ended up maiming this this innocent woman and didn't kill the the person, the mafia guy who was in the same cafeteria, the California sandwich shop, he got off free.
1: So these uh, incidents lately, uh, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, are more to do with um, settling scores. Some yeah. some of them, I, I'm guessing, go back quite a ways, because if you look at the uh, Angela Musitano uh, murder in water down here, um, you know, he was off in a new life, uh, apparently, and, and had young children, and I yeah. uh, mm-hmm. feel terrible for his children, and, and that's just a horrible thing. Um, uh, but that was, you think that was a score that was being settled from whenever?
3: Yeah, well, remember, uh, going back uh, almost 20 years, yeah, they, the Musitanos were behind, and they, they were in jail for eight or nine years, mm-hmm. Angelo and his brother Pat, for the killing of, Johnny Papelio and Carmen Baralero, and another killing they were involved in. And they were also involved in the suggested killing or the uh, contract to, on some other mafia families, including uh, K9, who was a biker guy uh, who was well known in Hamilton area, now dead, uh, the Filipinos. So there were a lot of people out to get the Musitanos. They were in jail for you know, eight or nine years, and uh, it was only recently that people have started to move on that, if that's the case. As I say, they don't, all all these shootings and killings and hits don't have to be necessarily connected, uh, in the sense that, you know, there are various motives, including revenge, right. which uh, classically is a, uh, is best served cold, you know, it's a
1: that's how the old saying goes, anyway.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the point is that you never forget these things, and there are people in the Papalia orbit and in in the Barillero orbit and Lupino orbit and even the canine orbit that might want revenge for their killings uh, even 20 years ago.
1: Right. James Dubrow, uh, expert on uh, all things organized crime, uh, writer. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. I appreciate it. Thank
3: you, Jamie. Take care.
1: Have a great day. Bye-bye. Right, bye. There's uh, James Dubrow, and yeah. Interesting, very interesting, disturbing. When I say interesting, I mean interesting in a disturbing, a uh, dark, macabre kind of kind of way. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM nine hundred CHML.